All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the fifth day of March, 2019. I always like to remind you that I publish a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and you can can subscribe to that by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our office here in New York during normal work hours, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to my friend Chen Lin's letter. Um, Chen is, uh, publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? Has a brilliant track record, especially in the biotech sector, but also covers energy uh, and the uh, mining sector as well, especially precious metals mining. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Go to ChenPicks.com, ChenPicks.com. And also, always like to remind you of Michael Oliver, who's with us in just a few minutes to give us his latest take on, on some of the most important markets that we follow. OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com is where you should go to sign up for a subscription to Michael Oliver's letter. I want to thank you all for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, like to encourage you to continue your questions and comments coming our way. You can send them to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. And of course, we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Without them, we would not be talking to you, I dare say. Novo Resources, Triumph Gold, Gold Mining Inc., Uranium Energy, Miramont Resources, Great Bear Resources, and Klondike Gold are the companies that are sponsoring this show this week. And I did get a chance to meet with several of them up in Toronto over the weekend at the Prospectors and Developers Conference and also at the Metals Investor Forum. I have titled today's show, A Return to the Gold Standard. Are you kidding me? Is that even possible? Alistair McLeod and Michael Oliver return as guests, and Bill Pincus, he's the president and CEO of Miramont Resources, appears for the first time to talk about one of my favorite stock picks in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. That's Miramont Resources. Alistair says that a return to a gold standard is the only way nations can contain the interest cost of servicing debt. The only alternative, he says, is inflationist policies that can only lead to far higher interest rates and currency destruction. Alistair opines that the upcoming credit crisis is likely to kill the welfare state model in the West by destroying their unbacked paper currencies, while at the same time, China, Russia, and their Asian allies have the means to prosper. 
Well, that sounds a little strange to those of us who are inundated day after day with Western propaganda, but we'll hear what Alistair has to say about that. Well, what happens to the dollar if the U.S. opts to take the short-term easy way out, that is by printing more and more money, and how should investors respond? Well, we're going to be talking to Alistair in the second half of today's show for answers to those questions. Bill Pincus will be with me right after our first break, but right now I'm pleased to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again to talk about his views on the gold markets and other markets that are extremely important to us. Thanks for being with us again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Uh, good to have you. Uh, good to hear your voice again, as always, the reassuring voice, but more than that, I must say, people that listen to you every week have no idea, unless they subscribe to your letter, uh, either of your le- great letters, uh, your services, the, the, the larger one uh, that covers many different markets or the one that's more focused on gold and silver. Uh, as I was uh, telling Michael right before we went live here today that one of the things I really appreciate about him as much as anything is the stability that he provides, the stability in terms of his re- his advice that he gives. And I think the momentum work that he does has been very, very helpful to me uh, because it helps to show you, I, I get sort of a sense of the foundational strength or weakness of a market, and that to me is very helpful. Otherwise, if I were just watching the price charts, I would be very nervous. I would be in and out. I'd be guessing, second-guessing myself all the time. Am I on the right side of the market or not? And uh, Michael, thanks so much for being with me again to help us uh, stabilize us at a time when gold has uh, had a little bit of a pullback here. You know, I just came back from the Metals Investor Forum, as I mentioned, in Toronto. Also, the Prospectors and Developers Association show in Toronto. It's one of the world's largest, if not the largest, mining sector shows in the world. And the mood was if quite subdued by gold bugs, if not outright pessimistic, because they've, they've seen the price of gold kiss that five-year ceiling once again. Many times it's gone up there and touched it and bounced right back down. So they're sort of despondent and sort of feeling like, yeah, there's no hope here. We're never going to go anywhere significant in the gold market. What can you tell listeners out there that have made bets on the long side of the gold market, but who are a bit depressed by gold's recent decline? Well, this past weekend, we did something we normally don't do, and that is we actually focused on price action. Um, and I think we had a weekly chart going back five or six years. And, uh, once gold crashed in 2013, the rally highs after that all crested in the mid to upper 1300s. And that's the line you're talking about that everybody can see now. You can be an amateur chartist with a crayon, and you can see the line. Mm-hmm. And what we noted was that coming off of the bear lows late 2015 into the rally that peaked in mid-2016, um, and coming off of that deep secondary low back in late 2016, they get all the way down to, I think, 1120 area, and then turned back up and went again to the mid-1300s, Uh, And then comparing it with the recent one that came from the 1160 low last August, and again, Mm -hmm. went back up to the mid-1300s. The tonal difference in price in those two prior surges that got up into that level was markedly different than this time around. They took a a longer time to get there, and they had $100 corrections in route going from the 1100s up into the 1300s. In fact, one of the rallies, the one that came off of the December 2016 low, took it a full year 
to reach its peak. And there were two $100 sell-offs in the process mm-hmm. of getting there, $100 mm-hmm. pullbacks in the process of getting to that line. This time, there were none. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had any jiggle we had from the August low last year up to the 1345 high we made two weeks ago was so trivial it almost didn't show up. It might have consisted of a percent here or there. Finally, we got a reflection, uh, a reflective action off of that line again. So far, it's consisted of, uh, let's see, 60-some-odd dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, right now, we're trading about 12.88 on gold, and the mm-hmm. high trade was 13.45. So um, the tone of getting back to that line again, which we shouldn't have done. We shouldn't have come back up to that line again if we didn't have the intent to go through. And I think that the intent is to go through. But finally, you did have a, a genuflex at the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call it an idiot line because any idiot could see it. Yeah. Uh, and so far, the pullback is far less serious than any of the pullbacks in those two other advances. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, the tone under the market, the bidding, is more resolute and is not waiting for such a sharp drop to find, you know, to enter the market and bid for it. Uh, mm-hmm. Before, you know, two couple $200, $100 drops mm-hmm. in late 2016, early 2017. This time, finally, they got uh, a 60-point pullback. Uh, mm-hmm. We think that line, if, if you were a bear on gold, and this is August of last year, we're down near 1160. Yeah, it might have had a rally from that low, you know, uh, just because it was a bit oversold at that point. But it shouldn't have come all the way back up to the high again. Mm-hmm. That, that indicates there was not enough resistance to stop it until you got back up again to the idiot line. So something's mm-hmm. going on there, tone-wise, uh, in mm-hmm. the gold market, that nobody's speaking about. Mm-hmm. The fact that it was able to get back there with su- such ease, it finally did have uh, you know, a little bit of a stumble here, but uh, we suspect that, uh, that we're going through that line. Right. Uh, and all from of our, our momentum stuff, and, and, our momentum is all positive. Uh, Your momentum is still is, positive. It's, it's almost yeah, yeah, no it's, change. It's, the only thing that turned negative was daily momentum, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that's logical, uh, sure. you know, day-to-day measurements of, of the momentum action. And frankly, right. it's, it's ripe to turn back up now, the daily momentum. Uh, so, you know, I, actually, I feel bad for the gold bears uh, yeah. <laughs> because they don't seem to realize what just happened between last August low and the high of two weeks ago, how easy it was to get back up to that high without flinching. That says something, mm-hmm. and yet nobody seems right. to notice the, the tone. All right, Michael. With regard to the gold shares, then how are how are they performing uh, during this? They're behaving this, uh, well. Pullback? Uh, they're behaving quite well. Yes, they did pull back a buck and a half in the GDX recently, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, it's it's above uh, our levels of breakout on momentum that occurred down around twenty dollars on the GDX, by the way. Uh, and I think we're trading in the high twenty ones right now, almost twenty two. Um, and so, you know, yes, it pulled back, but uh, for us, it's green lights, period. Yeah. Yes, you had a pullback. The problem with pullbacks is if you don't get in at the right time, mm-hmm. the pullbacks hurt. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the gold bugs buy strength rather than buying weakness. Uh-huh. And therefore, their average entry price is, uh, you know, on the upper end of a recent range than the lower end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's hopefully what momentum can provide is uh, earlier entry points. Uh, well, into, exactly. Into the resurrection. Exactly. You know. and, yeah, and we've seen it time after time. Not you know, we focus mostly on the gold market in this show, but I watch your other markets, and 
time after time, momentum gets you in at, a, at an earlier price and out at a higher price. And it's just, it really has worked, and that's why we have you here every week as often as we can anyway. Michael, with just a minute, a couple, um, um, uh, less than two minutes left, uh, the S&P 500, now, you published a daily momentum chart on your 360 weekend report that showed momentum holding firm support on the zero line. Of, of, of all the markets you frequently report on, the S&P is the one that seems to resist market laws most. What would, what would it take for you to join the U.S. equity market bulls? I would say it's virtually impossible. Uh, the damage that's been done uh, to us, if, if we were bullish on stocks, and we are, by the way, we're bullish on emerging markets in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call China 2500, uh, upper 2500s on Shanghai uh, a couple months ago, and it's just trading mm-hmm. up uh, to 3000 now. Yes. Uh, and it's behaving quite well. Uh, and I think on a relative basis, if you must own stocks, fine. Uh, own emerging markets, uh, and you know, like the EEM is the ETF emerging markets. Thirty some odd percent of it consists of Chinese stocks, uh, and own China. But the, owning the developed markets, uh, which have been inflated ever since at least 2011 through, you know, the recent highs by central banks, you're buying into something that has been blown up in terms of price uh, levels by fiat currency games, interest rate games, and so forth. Yes, the Chinese engage in that, but a little less frequently, actually, than we do. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so on a relative basis, if you want to own stocks, yeah, own emerging markets, which are commodity-related often, and uh, own China as opposed to owning the S&P 500 or the, the DAX index in Germany. All right. But, Very good, yeah. uh, Michael. We'll, we'll have to leave it go at that. We're, uh, we're out of time right now for this segment, but thank you so much for your Wisdom, it's always uh, greatly appreciated. I know not only by me, but by most of my listeners. So thanks again for being with us. Thanks, Jay. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break now. Don't go away, though. Bill Pincus, the president and CEO of Miramont Resources, which company has a very exciting copper gold exploration prospect in Peru. He'll be with us right after the break, so don't go away. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario, Canada. Recent drill results yielded an impressive 1,600 grams per ton gold over 0.7 meters near surface. GBR is fully funded to drill 300-plus holes this year. McEwen Mining is a significant shareholder following a $5.7 million investment as part of a recent $10 million financing. Visit greatbearresources.ca. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. 
you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me for the first time, Bill Pincus. Bill is the President, CEO, and Director of Miramont Resources. That's a sponsor to this show. He has uh, 40 years of experience as a geologist, consultant, and executive in the minerals industry. He has held senior positions at, at FMC Gold, later became Meridian, uh, Sunshine Mining, uh, and uh, various junior companies. Starting in 2002, he formed Esperanza Resources and served as CEO and president of that company. Esperanza successfully discovered two deposits in Mexico and Peru before its acquisition by Alamos Gold. Uh, Bill has extensive Peruvian experience, having lived and worked there uh, for over 25 years. And now Bill is teaming up with none other than Dr. Quentin Henning, who is well-known in this show, uh, he is the chairman of that company uh, to explore what uh, both geologists believe is an ex- exceptional gold copper target uh, in Peru. Uh, I think there's some base metals involved there uh, in addition to copper as well. It's really an exciting story. It's one that I've just recently added to my newsletter and one that I've purchased shares of stock in myself. Uh, before we say hello to Bill, I should tell you that it uh, uh, that Miramont Resources trades in Toronto under the symbol M-O-N-T. You can buy it in the United States, as I have, under the symbol M-R-R-M-F. 54.8 million shares outstanding, recently trading at around 31 cents in U.S. money, giving it a market cap of around $17 million. Well, thank you for joining me today, Bill. It's really great to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Peru is uh, is is one of those foreign countries that I still I feel pretty comfortable uh, investing in. How are your feelings about Peru in terms of risk? Well, the thing I like about Peru, and I've been working there since the early 1990s, is you can be pretty assured of political or legal stability. Mining is very important to the country. They have a very clear cut legal system and land tenure system uh, and so you know what you have to do and they don't change the rules on you yeah that's very important of course uh, the rule of law uh, just to be clear Bill I mean Miramont is an exploration company you're an exploration geologist I don't think the company has any intention of becoming a producer at least at this stage and it, your, your real goal is to find a sizable deposit that would be attractive to to a major or some large larger company is that do I have that right? I, yes, I think that's fair. We are an exploration company. Uh, you know, we would have the capacity to discover and define a resource, but you know, beyond that, then I think it has to, uh, you know, be passed on to a larger company with a different skill set. Right. And let's focus on what we do well. You have two properties in Peru, but the one I believe you are most focused on is a, a Cerro Hermoso project. Um, where in Peru is it located? And as a geologist, what do you see there that makes this an attractive exploration target? Uh, it's located in, in Puno, Peru, in southern Peru. Um, we're in a pretty good neighborhood. You know, other major companies are exploring or and there's a number of small mines as well in our neighborhood 
what makes this prospect exciting to me, very exciting to me, as a geologist is it's a very unique environment where we see a combination of intrusive activity, volcanic activity. We have various different styles of mineralization. We have various styles of mineralization dependent on lithologies, limestones versus intrusive rock versus uh, diatreme, breccia rock. Um, and it also, it's a very, it, all of this covers a very large area, which indicates to me that there's real potential for a significant large size deposit, which is what we're really going after. That's really what I like to see as an investor as well, as something that has scale. So let's talk about some of the, the targets that you have. You mentioned the intrusives, volcanics, breaches, stock work, so forth. Uh, there, there are three basic targets, I know, in your press release uh, announcing your plans to start drilling, and I believe you actually have started drilling. Is that right, Bill? We have started drilling. We started in, in about mid-January, and we've completed uh, right now, oh, something on the order of 2,000 meters of drilling. Okay, uh, and, and probably uh, within, what, several weeks or so, you may have some results? Well, yeah, that's right. We're, we've drilled... Three holes in our first target, the uh, stockwork zone. Uh, we've now logged that core and sampled it, and that has been shipped to the assay lab. Uh, we're now drilling our second target, which is the central breccia zone. Uh, when we're done with that, we'll ship another batch of samples. So, I, you know, I don't know what the lab turnaround time is, but, uh, you know, we should be getting results, you know, in the near term, and we'll of course, publish those results when, uh, as soon as it's practical. Perhaps uh, sometime in March, end of March, uh, April. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair guess. You, so let's talk about the three different areas. You mentioned your first target was the Stockwork Zone. Uh, I believe that's a copper, gold, silver target, is it? That's exactly right. Uh, it's an area, um, pretty large area of you know, 500 by 500 meters, where we have uh, all sorts of alteration, some you know we've had up to three percent copper and ten grams of gold, so some very nice surface samples. Mm -hmm. uh, as it's exciting as we have a pretty significant magnetic anomaly underlying it, and so we're sort of using a combination of geology, geochemistry, and our fine tuning our drill hole orientation using the geophysics. So you found some nice samples, uh, some nice, uh, some nice values right on surface. I, I, I guess this is a fairly shallow target at this stage. Um, well, not necessarily because the magnetic signature, which uh -huh. picks up underneath the surface, is what we're surmising would be an intrusion. Uh, you know, possibly a porphyry type intrusion or related. So your early drill holes are uh, shallow holes. How how deep are the holes? No, actually, these first three drill holes are. Uh, where we budgeted about 450 meters per hole. Those are, you know, for first round, those are relatively deep holes. Sure. So you've you've put the drill down at the stock on the stockwork zone. Uh, have you drilled into the central breccia zone yet? We've completed one drill hole there, and we uh, are working on the second one as we speak. 
And the third target is a carbonate replacement zone. Is that something you'll be looking at anytime soon? And what, what specifically are we looking for there? Sure. Okay. We'll drill three holes into the central breccia zone. Then we'll move over to the carbonate replacement. This is a blind target. We're basing it on historic reports and mind maps and things they encountered there together with a geophysical anomaly, a chargeability anomaly that we believe might represent a lot of sulfide mineralization. Was there So there has been some work done on the property before or, or just sort of helter-skelter or individual small small operators? Or? It, was, it was a you know, small, medium-sized mine. It operated as an underground mine. There was a series of veins along the the perimeter of this volcanic structure, so circular. And they mined some fairly high-grade veins from, say, like the 1960s to the 19, very early 1990s. So, yeah, there is some historic work on, on the area, but we're taking a much different view on it, looking at it as a potentially much larger a bulk scale type district. So to what extent have your exploration plans been made for 2019 or are they fluid? Might they change depending on what you see during these early holes in these three different uh, types of targets? Oh, I think we have to be flexible and even within this drill program, uh, we plan flexibility into it. We're going to test, you know, in a fairly disciplined way, the three targets. Uh, but once we get results back on, you know, holes that we think look good, uh, we will have enough meterage to, you know, go back and either offset a zone or test out another idea in any of these three targets. So flexibility is key at this stage. We, you know, we, we'll see what we find and then we'll respond to that. Well, I'll really be looking forward to your uh, to your news releases once the first assays come out and you start to start to gain a, a bit more understanding of what you're dealing with. It's always always interesting to watch you know, things unfold in an exploration program like this. Now, let me ask you, Bill. It's always important uh, infrastructure access to the property. How how is how is this uh, project looking in regard to that? Is it easy to get there? Low cost? Or yes, you- it is. I mean, that's one of the real advantages of this project we actually have paved road to well the nearest drill pad is probably less than a kilometer from from paved road mm-hmm. so we have that we have plenty of water uh, in our core shack we generate our own power uh, there's a nearby town maybe about seven or eight kilometers away and so we basically we're renting out a hotel which we're using as our camp mm-hmm and then it's you know it's a 15 minute drive from town to where the core shack is. So logistically, it's fantastic. You know, at your stage now as an exploration company, you're not thinking about production down the road, but ultimately, as things develop as you hope they will, somebody's going to be concerned. Is there would there be electric power then into that town? I suppose. Yeah. So that, so that it wouldn't be too difficult to to uh, extend electricity to the project if if and when that becomes necessary. It's very close to the power grid. Um, you know, obviously, engineers have to study that and look at, you know, this potential supply from the power grid. But, yeah, infrastructure will be will not be a problem here. How well funded are you now, Bill? You're gonna, probably going to need to raise some money, I suppose, this year, depending on the, you know, I, I would guess if you start finding some really juicy stuff, you're going to want to keep going, uh, suppose, uh, assuming that the markets cooperate. But how, how well funded are you now, Bill? 
We're in pretty good shape. We, um, you may know, Jay, that we raised before we began drilling in January, roughly 1.6 million Canadian. Um, and so right now we have about 4.3 million, once again, Canadian mm-hmm. in, in the bank. So in U.S. terms, what is that? Uh, it's probably 3 million, 3, 3, 3.3 maybe, something like that. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So we're well-funded. Uh, the drilling project, uh, the drilling itself is going really smoothly and coming in under budget, uh, which, you know, everyone always likes. So, you know, we're, we're in good shape. But you're, act, you're absolutely right. Uh, if we have success, if the market responds, you know, we'll look to raise sufficient funds to carry the project forward to resource definition, at least. Bill, I always like to see the companies that I invest in and companies that I uh, recommend in my newsletter that the management has some skin in the game. Uh, does your management team own shares of, uh, of Miramount? We're pretty well invested. Uh, I would say management and those very close to management. We probably have about 30% of the company. Um, I, we all participated in this recent financing as well. All right. Very important. Um, you do have a second project in Peru. Perhaps just take 30 seconds or a minute or so to, to talk about that and, and what your plans might be longer term for that project. Okay. The other project is called Lucacha. Uh, it's in Tacna, once again, in, in very southern Peru. And it's a porphyry copper project. Uh, we're in a very good neighborhood. We're maybe 50 kilometers from the Toque Pala and Pahoni operations of southern Peru. Anglo-American drilled out another porphyry called Chipispaya about 10 kilometers away. And we have a project, Lucacha looks, I mean, it's clearly a porphyry type system. And we've done mapping, we've done geochemistry, and, uh, you know, we like everything that we see. The issue with the project, however, is as we're close to the border, we require a special level of permission from the Peruvian government because we're a foreign company. So, um, you know, it's, it's another layer of permitting, essentially. We're pretty far advanced in that. We've passed most of the major hurdles. And so I would hope that we'll get that sometime in the fairly near future, at which point, you know, we'll want to probably do a round of geophysics before we define drill targets. All right. Well, that's uh, that'll be good news, I guess, when you when you finally get permission. So, just summing up today's discussion, Bill, uh, this is an introduction to our listeners. Your story, which I'm quite excited about, own shares in it. Looking forward to some uh, some juicy drill results. Hopefully, no nothing ever assured in this business. That's that's for sure. But what should people be watching for then, as we head into this year, as we as the year progresses? Well, I think clearly they have to be watching the drill results. Um, you know, this is this is the moment in time. We've, I think, put together a very good geologic model. We've done a really good work on the ground. Now we drill and see uh, what we find. Well, it's going to be exciting, I think, and uh, nice to know that Dr. Quentin Henning is involved as well. And he's been really helpful to me on this project. And, uh, you know, we're both geologists, so when we talk geology to each other, he keeps throwing out some very interesting ideas and uh-huh. says, hey, you should look at, you know, how does it look compared to this mine or that mine? 
Very. So it's been, you know, really fun and, and useful discussions with Quinton. Yeah, he's he's one of those geologists that really think outside the box, and that's what makes him so interesting and uh, exciting, uh, the things he's involved with. So I was really delighted to see he's involved with you. Bill, that's about all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for introducing the story to my listeners, and I hope to keep up with you going forward as those drill results come out. Well, you're very welcome, and uh, you and me both waiting for those drill results. Absolutely. And yeah. everybody else has put some uh, some money into your story, I'm sure. Well, uh, that is all the time we have for this segment, folks, but don't go away. I'll be right back with Alistair McLeod of goldmoney.com, who makes the case that, uh, quote, the only way a nation can contain interest expense is by returning to a gold standard, end of quote. Now, that may sound like an outrageous assertion, but Alistair's well-reasoned ideas are anything but outrageous. If you care about your economic future in light of the U.S. $22 trillion debt load right now, not to mention mountains of debt on other economies around the world, you won't want to miss the insights that Alistair will bring to us right after the break. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Uranium Energy Corp, NYSE, American UEC, is America's emerging uranium producer. The company is 100% unhedged and has fully permitted and licensed processing plant and production-ready uranium assets in South Texas and Wyoming. With the rising uranium spot price, UEC is positioned to lead and supply to the U.S. uranium requirements ahead. Visit uraniumenergy.com and on Twitter at Uranium Energy. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have uh, one of our more frequent guests here, Alistair McLeod. He's with me again today, uh, and we want to explore the prospects of uh, what most Americans believe uh, is an impossibility, and that is the reinstitution of a gold-backed monetary system. Thanks for joining me again, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. Always good to talk to you, um, and I'm glad that I'm here in sunny Queens, New York, and not a rainy Britain, but in any event, uh, then there's Matt, our engineer, who's sitting out in a beautiful desert today with 72 degrees and uh, sunshine, of course. Don't but make anyway, me envious. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we can all be envious, but um, anyway, everybody has uh, has their own uh, their own issues. Um, 
And what we want to talk about today is the issue that all of us are burdened with, and that is debt and an irresponsible monetary system. Uh, I've titled today's show, A Return to the Gold Standard. Is that even possible? And I think the following comment from a listener who who responded to our promotion of today's show, a listener named Donald, said, and I quote, it's not possible to return, that is referring to return to a gold standard. He says, it's not possible. Digital money is here, and the authorities will continue to develop a digital financial system. A gold standard could not work in today's cyber electronic marketplace. End of quote. So let me ask you, Alistair, let's explore the logic behind this widely held view that gold can never again become a monetary metal. Uh, to be used in commerce and trade and so forth. Uh, first of all, what about the gold standard could not work in today's cyber electronic marketplace? I don't think you would agree with that, probably. Uh, no, I mean, that's got nothing to do with it. What has a lot more to do with this is uh, politics. It's, it's, it's politics that makes it almost impossible to imagine this happening. But uh, the reason I think that some countries... Uh, will return to a gold standard. I don't, incidentally, I don't see America doing it. I don't see mm-hmm. European countries doing it. I don't see Britain doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, um, if you, just imagine, um, if you will, and this is not too much of a stretch, uh, that um, uh, the uh, purchasing power of your fiat currency starts going down at an uncontrollable rate. Now, at that stage, you will find that the government's cost of borrowing will be rising rapidly. In other words, the debt trap is sprung and governments are basically bust. Now, at that stage, um, wouldn't a politician dream of a world where uh, the government was able to borrow at, say, anything between 2 and 4% um, mm-hmm. for long-term money, um, and uh, that would resolve his immediate problems? Now, that can happen if you tie the currency to gold, because um, if you tie the currency properly to gold, then that becomes the rate, the interest rate at which you will borrow. You, you will reflect the interest rate of borrowing and lending gold, not the interest rate of borrowing and lending uh, a falling fiat currency. That is the key to it. Now, mm-hmm. I, when I wrote the article, I made it clear that I think that there are some countries that can do it and there's some that can't. Um, uh, amazingly, we have seen that Russia has already moved in that direction by replacing virtually all her dollars, and she's still earning dollars from her oil sales, uh, mm-hmm. with uh, physical gold. And uh, China hasn't cornered the gold market, uh, the physical gold market, for no reason whatsoever. Um, And I think the key to it is uh, uh, whether government finances um, can be controlled in the event uh, that fiat currencies start going down the pan. Now, the problem, I think, with the arithmetic in a country like America and indeed in Britain is that when you hit um, inflation, when you hit um, uh, a, a new credit crisis, which incidentally we can come on to, I think that's um, uh, uh, you know beginning to happen, then what happens is that government expenditure goes up because you've got more unemployed, you've got all the welfare commitments and so on and so forth, which are written in law and the government has to uh, satisfy. And at the same time, the tax income falls. So mm-hmm. the, the government has to borrow a lot more money. 
And uh, under those circumstances, you will find that interest rates at which they borrow, the yields on government bonds, will start rising. Um, and, uh, you know, in order to um, get out of that trap, governments have to be able to control the uh, level of borrowing in those conditions. Now, the Chinese can probably do it because they don't have these big welfare commitments that mm -hmm. the Americans and the British have. Mm -hmm. um, and the Russians can do it for exactly the same reason. So we have this situation where uh, the dynamic um, uh, growth part of the world, which is the Asian continent, if you like, is actually far better placed when it comes to collapsing fiat currencies uh, than uh, the well-established uh, welfare-heavy um, uh, uh, advanced economies. So mm. this is a, it's a fascinating situation. Um, yeah, it's, it's it really is. It, it is. Yes, it, it really is fascinating, and it's it's interesting and ironic that the the, the communist uh, countries, the so, former Soviet Union, which uh, Russia, I wouldn't call it a communist country now, but but uh, certainly China considers itself a communist country. That those are countries that are have less of a welfare burden than the supposedly capitalist United States and West. Of course, I don't believe that by any means we're very much capitalist nations anymore. But uh, that's really interesting, and I guess the, the reason, then, um, the reason, Alistair, that you know, when when you start having inflation, obviously lenders need to have compensation for that inflation, so they demand higher interest rates, right? And but we're not seeing higher interest rates yet in the United States, so most people are saying, well, there's nothing really to fear. We don't have any inflation to speak of. In fact, we hear the Fed uh, chairman and Federal Reserve folks saying we should have a bit more inflation. That would be good for us. I don't buy yes. that, but of course that's the theory. And they're telling us we don't have inflation or anything serious to concern about that. I know you don't necessarily agree with that. I know you don't necessarily agree that the numbers that are given to us in the CPI, the PPI, and so forth by government are really legit, right? So you would hold that we do have, uh, we do have a, a serious inflation problem already, but nothing yet. I guess that you would call hyperinflation. Um, well, yes, this is uh, that, that is certainly how I would see it. Um, and uh, I think, in, you know, price inflation is going to uh, accelerate because um, we have an awful lot of excess money within the system. But returning to uh, the topic of bond yields, the reason that uh, U.S. Treasury yields have not risen that much so far mm -hmm. is because uh, the um, government uh, budget deficit is mainly financed by uh, inward capital flows. Um, it, if you like, you've got you have the twin deficits, and the way you know if 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 you um, uh, sell goods to America and you get paid in dollars, you have two choices: you sell the dollars into the foreign exchange market for something else, or you invest those dollars in U.S. treasuries or something similar. And so far, the foreigners have been doing that to a very large extent. Um, I've just done some recent calculations, and it seems to me that in fiscal 2018, uh, the amount of government debt that had to be bought internally by domestic investors, which includes mm -hmm. the banks, and it's mainly the banks, is in the order of about $180 billion. That is all. Mm -hmm. Now, when you get a recession, 
and the foreigners stopped buying the dollar, which I can come on to in a moment if you like. But when the uh, uh, foreigners stop buying the dollar and you get a recession, then suddenly you're looking at uh, domestic investors having to find something like a trillion dollars in order to uh, uh, satisfy that um, uh, budget deficit. Mm-hmm. Now, that is going to be mainly inflationary because you've got no savers there. I mean, oh. you, know, you know, Mr. Joe Soap basically um, is a borrower and he's, he's up to his neck in consumer debt. So, um, you know, how, how is this going to be uh, um, financed? It's going to be financed quite simply uh, by quantitative easing, by printing money to try and keep that rate down. Because if the rate goes up, the government is bust. But mm-hmm. you can't. You can't do that for very, very long before the market smells a rat. And I think that uh, that is the situation we're moving towards as far as the dollar is concerned. Now, I'd add another thing which is very important, and that is um, you can't have failed to notice that the global economy seems to have just run into a brick wall um, Mm -hmm. over the last two or three months. Mm -hmm. Now, particularly, this is the case with international trade, cross-border trade, and uh, I have no doubt at all that one of the things that has triggered this, or the main thing that has triggered this, is uh, American um, trade protection policies under Mm -hmm. President Trump. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, basically what that does on the capital side is it discourages um, uh, foreigners, if you like, from recycling dollars into U.S. treasuries. Mm-hmm. If anything, uh, they're up to their necks now in in dollars, particularly since the prospects for selling more goods to America have declined. They've now got far too much dollars. Mm-hmm. I calculate, incidentally, that's around about $24 trillion dollars of investment worth and cash, there's about $5 trillion in cash and very short-term interest uh, instruments held in foreign hands. The effect of that is that they are going to be sellers at the time when uh, the American government basically uh, needs to attract something like a trillion dollars of investment out of the private sector. Wow. This is, you know, I mean, these days of seeing the 10-year bond yielding 2.7% will be long gone under those circumstances. And I think that's how I see it happening. It would seem so. And, you know, for the longest time, we Americans have been able to get by living way beyond our means because of the kindness of strangers, as they put it. And so you really see that coming to an end to a great extent. And, And it seems to me also, though, Alistair, geopolitical issues, too, where, the, for example, the United States isn't very fond of having allowing China to uh, patrol its own sea lanes. I mean, if I were the Chinese, I would think, what right do the Americans have to come over here and tell us that we're not allowed to, uh, you know, to control our own sea lanes? Um, do you see geopolitics coming in the, in the, in the way and, and also aggravating uh, this need for the United States to finance itself. I mean, and again, Mr. Trump is running huge budget deficits at the very peak of our economic cycle, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think the American approach um, is, if I may say so, and I hope I won't upset the ordinary person with whom I have no truck at all. I, I find the ordinary American just, you know, really lovely people. It's the government that I'm not very keen on. Mm-hmm. But in that context, if I can say that there is a level of arrogance um, in America's dealings with other nations, which 
basically uh, makes them pretty unpopular. And, um, you know, the, the relationship with the Chinese, it's rather like um, uh, you or me going into the bank and telling the bank manager what an idiot you really think he is and how you really dislike him. And by the way, can you lend me a million bucks? You know, come on, this is, <laughs> this is not the way forward. Um, and I think that's essentially the position that America has put itself in. Um, and I'm, I'm very sorry to say it, but I, I think that there is going to come a time when the Chinese actually realize that this sort of softly, softly approach of just playing uh, along with what the Americans want and trying not to upset them too much while pursuing their uh, very definite goals um, is getting more and more difficult and may not even work. I mean, we see this, there is a, a big, uh, you know, the sort of the big annual meeting, if you like, of all the regional heads and everything is going on. Um, I think as we speak, it started today. Um, so something will probably come out of that. Um, and I think also on North Korea, um, I see what will happen with North Korea is that she will go under China's umbrella Mm -hmm. uh, both nuclear and economic, mm -hmm. and effectively, um, you know, American diplomacy will be left out in the cold. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, to me, that's that's an absolute dead dead certainty. Mm -hmm. Now, so, uh, so geopolitics are very very important. So I would agree with your point on that entirely. Okay, so I, you said earlier that you don't see America going back to a gold standard, uh, though you do say, and you, you noted that China has cornered the gold market. I'm not sure that that's an idea that most Americans have any uh, any idea about. I don't think that most Americans would have any clue about that. But can you give us some evidence that the Chinese have really, are really have cornered, uh, would you put it in those terms, cornered the gold market? Yeah, I mean, obviously, they haven't cornered it completely. But, um, you know, the, the physical market is now in Shanghai. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know that uh, the Chinese started accumulating gold back from about 1983 when they introduced the, the regulations in order to do it. Now, a lot of that gold has been accumulated and is kept in different accounts rather than in safe, which acts, if you like, as safe as the, you know, the big wealth um you know, sovereign wealth fund, mm -hmm. which is run by the um, uh, People's Bank of China. And that is where the um, uh, reserves are kept. That is in safe. It's quite a good name, actually, for it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and now what's interesting is that China is now sending a signal. I mean, apart from all the, the gold, which she hasn't disclosed, we've put that to one side. She's now sending a very clear signal uh, every month. She's now disclosing that she is increasing um, her official mm -hmm. gold reserves. Mm -hmm. Now, um, where does the money come from? I think if you look at um, the uh, China's sales um, of of goods to America and payment in uh, uh, in U.S. dollars, I think she's liquidating those dollars for gold, mm -hmm. uh, which is in, and that to me is a very clear signal that China is, if you like, firing a warning shot on this trade issue across America's bows. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know whether, um, uh, you know, the boys in Langley and, and, and in Washington will actually sort of understand the importance of this. Right. I think they probably do. Um, but it certainly hasn't come out into the press. Um, no. But that, to me, is pretty clear. And the other thing in terms of cornering the market is that uh, since 2002, uh, private citizens in China have been allowed to buy gold. And so far, they have accumulated 
uh, uh, approximately 17,000 tonnes of gold. That is, that is private ownership. Right. Um, and so if you put that together with, and also the other thing about uh, China's gold policy is she controls all the, she owns as a state uh, all the uh, gold processing and refining, and no gold leaves China at all. If you talk to the Swiss refiners, they never see Chinese uh, uh, refined gold coming bars um, in the international market. Mm -hmm. They are never, ever seen. All the gold goes there. China is like Hotel California for gold, <laughs> if you like. <laughs> they check and, in, but they never check yeah, out. Just they never, exactly. Hotel. Exactly. Exactly, and they bring bring in dore from other uh, nations uh, for refining, and again, that's the the Hotel California for gold. Al Alistair, could you comment on the importance of Shanghai being the physical market now? We're seeing some remarkable things happening on the LBMA with the palladium, where there's not enough supply and metal to meet the demands. But could you talk a little bit about the importance you mentioned that Shanghai now is a physical uh, gold trading market? Of, for the world. Uh, why is that important? Well, it's important because uh, the Chinese are the largest single demanders of physical bullion. Um, and it gets delivered out of the Shanghai Gold Exchange um, and uh, what they call withdrawals, which basically are deliveries out of the vaulting system, uh, average around about 2,000 tons a year. Now, that compares with non-Chinese mine output of around about 2,900, yeah, 2,900 tons per annum. Uh, so you can see that, um, oh, and this is, the, this is the other thing, I mean, China from nowhere has become the largest uh, uh, miner of gold in the world. I mean, mm -hmm. something like 430 right. tons uh, uh, annually. I mean, yes. it is just quite, quite remarkable. Yes, yes, indeed. And, and so, uh, so you have this situation where the countries that are, that the United States considers to be, you know, unfriendly to us. I think they would probably say we're being unfriendly toward them. But nonetheless, the countries that are considered, you know, that, that are targets of U.S. policy, China, mm -hmm. to a lesser extent than Russia right now, seems to be the, yep. the, the, the devil. Um, so do you see them sort of coming together with a gold-backed currency uh, at, in order to compete against the dollar, and then what might that impact have, if, if that's how you see it, what impact might that have on the American markets? I mean, if, they, yeah. if these countries no longer want to buy treasuries, then we're left to buy them ourselves to print money. Americans don't have the savings to, to finance this. So are you seeing sort of a runaway uh, inflationary situation where money has to be created, pumped into the system, by the, you know, creating money out of nothing to buy the U.S. treasuries, the dollar loses its purchasing power, and we're left out in the cold, the, and the citizens in America and the Western world, while China and Russia and some of those other countries that are aligned with them uh, might be in much better shape, I guess. That's what you're suggesting. Uh, yes. I mean, you, you've raised two basic points um, uh, there, Jay. Uh, the first is um, the inflationary outlook for America. Monetary inflation is the only way in which America can balance her books. You're going to get a huge dose of monetary inflation in the upcoming um, downturn 
which is mm -hmm. already happening, uh, and uh, that will begin to undermine prices. It will undermine prices first in the foreign exchanges because the foreigners will be selling dollars that they don't need anymore. Incidentally, note, I noted that um, uh, in December, uh, foreigners sold a net $91.4 trillion dollars. Mm. Um, whereas uh, normally they are buyers. They are buyers because um, they export more than they import. Mm -hmm. They export more to America than more than they import. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it is already going into reverse. Mm. Now, um, uh, so that's the first thing. Yes, America, unless she finds some solution to it, is heading towards the ultimate destruction of her currency. How long it will take, I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, I'm writing about this, which will be released on Thursday, so your listeners might um, yeah. like to look out for That's that. That's at goldmoney.com, goldmoney.com. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, the second point that you're raising is uh, uh, that the Chinese and the Russians and their response to this. Now, I, what I don't see is the Chinese, um, uh, if you like, sort of acting um, aggressively on this issue. I think what they are likely to do is just sort of continue with their wait and see policy, even though, as I said earlier, it's getting more difficult for them to do it. They are actually patient. They will watch America basically screw herself into the ground. She will not assist in the process whereby America destabilizes her own economy. Mm -hmm. There is no sense in doing that for the simple reason that she will get blamed. That mm -hmm. must be avoided. It must be avoided for all our sakes mm -hmm. um, because <laughs> the stakes yes. are horrendously high. Yes. I mean, the, and the problem that she has got is that if I am right and she has got substantial hidden uh, gold reserves uh, in various accounts which are not included in her reserves, gold in effect is a financial nuclear weapon. She has got to be extremely careful how she handles it. So the way I see things evolving is that after it is absolutely clear that the dollar is in major difficulties and um, uh, anyone, um, you know, sort of acting reasonably would try and um, protect themselves from that situation, then it is possible for China to act to protect herself, but not okay. before. Okay, we're going to have to leave it go with, the, uh, with that, Alistair. We're out of time. It's always, always a pleasure having you. There's never enough time with you. I hope we can have you back again sometime. Well, folks, uh, that is all the time we have for today. Next week, um, I hope that you'll join me when Benjamin Weicker, professor at uh, Franciscan University, will help us connect the dots between monetary debasement and the overall moral, spiritual, and economic spiral downward that the Western world is now seemingly entering into. The basis for our discussion will be Dr. Weicker's book, Worshipping the State, How Liberalism Became Our State Religion. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Gold Mining Inc., ticker symbol G-O-L-D on the TSX and GLDLF on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. 
Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com.